with a new coach and everything on board i i was kind of at the race line if anything under trained but feeling really fresh whereas 2018 i think i, I can now say i was definitely overtrained. Hello and welcome to No Finish Line podcast featuring athlete interviews and discussion on running, training, travelling and adventure. This podcast is sponsored by Great Outdoors, Ireland's premier outdoor retailer and today we are recording in the new Great Outdoors store on South Great Georgia Street in Dublin. You will find them online at www.greatoutdoors.ie. In this episode I'm joined by Alistair Higgins, a Scottish international ultra runner living in Dublin who has made quite a name for himself within the distance running scene. Alistair took part in his first ultramarathon in Connemara back in 2014, finishing in 11th place in the 63.3km Connemarathon Ultra with a time of 4 hours and 51 minutes. This race is a non-standard distance made up of a marathon and half marathon combined. Since then he has raced at a variety of distances from 50k up to the time-based 24-hour race and most recently he finished 4th place competing against a very stacked field in the Spartathlon. Alistair, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Alistair, first of all, let's talk about your most recent race to Spartathlon. Fourth place was a fantastic finish in a race like this. Can you give me a typical training week and also what your peak week was in advance of this event? Well, there are kind of two ways to sort of answer that question because uh, I raced Spartathlon last year and this year and there were two very different years in terms of training. So Last year I was doing really high mileage, this year pretty average mileage for uh, an ultra runner and uh, I think this year my mileage topped out at about 110 miles with the occasional 100 mile week but not every week. Whereas last year I peaked at just under 200 miles which was a pretty heavy workload. And what would your longest training run have been this year compared with last year? This year, well... If you can look at races as sort of training, then um, I did a marathon, but my actual training runs this year were mostly in the sort of, you know, if I look at a long run in the region of 30 to 35 kilometers, whereas last year I I peaked at doing back-to-back 50Ks over one weekend, just purely training, not racing. So this year you were probably a lot fresher and you were focusing on quality sessions rather than just the quantity, just putting the miles into the legs. Would that be right? Yeah, but last year there was a, a sort of certain element of um, mental sort of confidence coming from the, the high mileages and thinking that if I had those really hard training weeks behind me, that I'd be better prepared for the race, both mentally and physically, having gone through high mileage training runs this year. With a new coach and everything on board, I I was kind of at the race line, if anything, undertrained, but feeling really fresh. Whereas 2018, I think I, I can now say I was definitely overtrained. The week before the race, what way did you taper? There wasn't a huge taper, you know. I think most runners would do three, three weeks or two weeks, depending on what the race is and how the training's gone. But this was kind of like a one-week taper where I think on the Sunday before the race, I did... 20 or 22k and the race actually starts on a friday so i had five days of kind of reduced mileage and pretty easy stuff but still running every day pretty much and what did you do the night before the race what was your last meal and what time did you go to bed seeing as it was a very early start the following morning yeah it starts at 7 a.m so you have to be up really and out of bed at 5 a.m so you have to have everything ready to go i think i was in bed at about eight and i probably didn't get to sleep until after 10 <laughs> you know lying uh lying awake thinking uh of all the things i might have forgotten to do in terms of meals i didn't really have a huge meal like maybe usually the the lunchtime before a race like this 
um, on the previous day, I, I would have a bigger meal. And then in the evening, it's just a pretty standard meal, you know, but mostly carbs and a bit of protein. Pretty standard stuff, really. And your pre-race breakfast, what was that? Oh, I can't remember. I think it, it was probably just like toast and something like, I mean, the yogurt in Greece is amazing. So like yogurt and honey, something like that. So you didn't actually plan your breakfast beforehand. You just took whatever was there. Yeah, well, everyone stays in a hotel and they're all lumped together and you get a, a choice of, of what to eat. But I wouldn't I wouldn't have a huge breakfast before a race and I'd certainly steer clear of fried foods and uh, sort of processed meats and things like that. But um, uh, generally some, some light carbs and, and something else, sweet maybe, but... Um, Simple. Yeah, that, that's what I'd usually have anyway. Simple. Yeah, yeah. Now, how did you feel at the start line? I felt great, but I, f- I still felt like there was a, a certain amount of mental prep to do. So, you know, everyone's socializing, they're getting photos taken and shaking hands with the runners who they might have seen for a year or two. And uh, I just went off into a corner and sat on a bench and uh, I was in my own little world just trying to visualize the race and especially the, you know Spartathlon it's a long race it's 153 miles and I break that into kilometers so 246 or so and uh, I'm always thinking about that in thirds and I'm thinking about particularly the last third the last 80 kilometers and how much it's going to hurt so <laughs> the the mental prep was trying to visualize the the pain but also preparing for it uh, if that makes sense, you know, yes. knowing that's going to hurt and knowing that I can get through it. Now, in the race in 2018, you finished in 10th place. So there were obviously people there who were going to looking at you and they knew you were going to be a competitor in this and that, that you were part of the challenge. Did you feel a bit of extra pressure because of that? Like there was an expectation on you now to perform? In a way, yeah. I mean, I, I do put pressure on myself, but I kind of had to take a step back sort of approaching the race and I had to think of it as an entirely different year. 2018, for anyone who doesn't follow Spartathlon, it was a very unusual race. The weather was atrocious. There was uh, what they called a medicane, which is basically a Mediterranean hurricane that hit the race pretty much at the um, sort of halfway point uh, for most runners. And it was cold and it was wet, which for Greece in September, you don't expect. And I think a lot of people thought that it was it was a bit of a soft year, that it wasn't a classic Spartathlon year and that it was maybe a bit easier so I've seen a few sort of previews online and uh, my name wasn't mentioned really in them that's good so I was kind of happy about that and uh, hanging out with the British team before the race as well the the British team was pretty stacked uh, this year there were I'd say four or five runners including myself who were very capable of top 10 finishes so I wasn't putting so much pressure on myself it was more of a case of sort of watching my back and seeing seeing who else was going to perform well one thing's for sure you'll be on the list next year when the race started were you a front runner from the start to achieve a fourth place position you can't be starting at the back no and last year in 2018 I did start pretty much at the back and I realized this time around that I had to be at least at the front for the start of the race and approached the first few kilometers like a normal race but after that i was pretty much a case of pacing myself and holding back and uh waiting for the race to unfold so i think uh of the british runners there were maybe five possibly even six ahead of me as the kind of pace settled down you know it takes you a while to just sort of 
find your rhythm and maybe 10 kilometers in i kind of like i was probably mid-pack running in the race but pretty relaxed about that and uh knowing that it's a long way to go you know <laughs> there's a lot that can happen and uh also i mean it was warm already at 7 a.m in, in the morning it was 22 degrees and the forecast was for 29 30 but i, I had a sneaky feeling that it was going to be hotter than that and and that's the way it turned out so I think a lot of the runners that went off at a good pace trying to lead from the front, I think they, they paid the price for it later on. How did the actual start affect your own plan? Well, I kind of had to adjust things a little bit. I, I kind of went off slightly slower than in my head I wanted to. And as soon as it started heating up, I realized that I was having to make more stops than I would have wanted just to get ice and extra water and, you know, cooling. So I was kind of running at the right pace in the end, but those stops were slowing me down. So I, I kind of knew that I was going to have a bearing on my, on my finish time, just having to stop and put ice everywhere. And as the day wore on, it got hotter and hotter. And uh, that's kind of when I started passing people, but I still wasn't thinking about places or anything like that. It was maintaining a steady pace, which I think was around about 5.15 per kilometer. And then obviously those stops were knocking that back whenever I had to uh, get ice. That's still a very respectable pace when you consider the distance. And you had mentioned that it was warm at the start. And also in your race report, you mentioned that the temperature got up to 36 degrees. How did you prepare for those high temperatures in advance of the race? I kind of did uh, the classic thing of uh, layering up with like two or three jackets and uh, leggings and tracksuit bottoms and woolly hat in the middle of the summer in, in Phoenix Park, hoping for uh, sunny days. And uh, you kind of look like a bit of a fool, but um, it, it does the job, you know, it gets the, the sweat flowing. And uh, I remember doing a few speed sessions and strides and things like that, and the actual sweat coming out of the the sleeves of my my jackets and hit me in the face uh so i i think it worked i i didn't really struggle that much in the heat i was more kind of just having to watch myself that i didn't push over the edge you know and i think if you do kind of overpace yourself then th there isn't really any coming back from that once it hits you you know if you if you are getting into the sort of heat stroke or you know uh, that kind of area well, it does sound like your acclimatizing plan did work. Did you notice many people actually succumbing to the high temperatures? Yeah, and it was kind of sometimes the people you didn't really expect. Um, I think around about the 100k mark, I passed Jao Oliveira, who's a really good Portuguese runner. I think he's he's been top three or at least top five in Spartathlon before, and he, he's, he's run it lots of times. And he was struggling. That really surprised me. And then some of the big names were definitely affected by the heat. Zach Bitter was up there and he was vying for the lead. And uh, I didn't see him. He was miles ahead. <laughs> but yeah, he dropped out. And yeah, quite a few of the favourites um, seemed to suffer. And that's the thing with a race like this, you never know. They, I think a lot of boys would have been on Zach Bitter and probably expecting the court record out of him. Yeah, I think that was that was kind of on the cards. You know, he had a fantastic year and he he just broken the 100-mile world record, I think, four or five weeks beforehand. So there was a question mark over whether he'd recovered, but I think he had and he was he was up for it. And uh, it was definitely his intention to win the race. But it goes to show that Spartathlon is the kind of race where you can't really count your chickens. You, you have to wait for the race to unfold and uh, see how it works out. Yes, exactly. And he was obviously favouring that over the... 24-hour world championships at Ronan Albi yeah. a month later. There were actually quite a few who were doing both 
they kind of had mixed fortunes you know some of them did well in the 24-hour world championships some of them not so well yeah it's a big ask and it's also a very easy way to get injured when you haven't fully recovered from the stress and strain that yeah 246 kilometers on the road will do to you how did you deal with the issue of uh, staying hydrated i've always been pretty good at kind of keeping an eye on that and I, I don't take on a huge amount of liquids in training runs or races but i'd have a, a timer on my watch and that would go off every half an hour and that's a kind of reminder to to drink and take on energy but most of my energy i was taking was in liquid form so it was, it was quite easy to maintain that just by my sort of energy fueling strategy was hydrating me at the same time essentially as well um and for anyone who doesn't know the race the checkpoints very regularly i think that between sort of two and every four kilometers you reach a checkpoint so there's no problem in in getting it but you know just trying to remember is 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 one thing but yeah i I didn't really have any problems as such and you have to plan those checkpoints really well because you, you can't really stop at them all and especially when you're trying to be competitive you have to limit the amount of times you actually stop or even slow down yeah and it's um it's so tempting especially later on in the race where you see an empty chair and uh, you think, oh, I'll just have a little breather here. And uh, it's something you really have to watch out for. But um, I mean, I was running it on crude, so I had to plan a bit better than most people and just make sure I had drop bags at the right place. And quite early in the race, I missed one, not through my fault, but the, the actual checkpoint didn't have the delivery of uh, drop bags. So <laughs> I got there and I was like pretty angry. But they, they have stuff at every checkpoint that you can get you through the race. You know, it's it's just your own particular fueling and hydration strategy that you kind of want to look after. Did you say you were uncrewed? You did it all on your own? Yeah, yeah, no crew, which I did both years. That's quite surprising considering, again, your finishing position because there's little tasks that you might need to do, like changing your shoes or even sorting out the shoelace and when you get to a certain point in the race it's very hard actually bending over to do something like that or to pick something up off the ground and the crew can be so such a big asset it's very surprising to hear somebody finishing so well without having a crew yeah i'm kind of aware of that and it's like well if things are going well you don't need a crew but if things go badly then that's when crews definitely help out and i did have a few shoe issues and things like that i managed to resolve them by borrowing knives and scissors off people you know to cut bits out of shoes and uh i think that was the worst of my my worries really um everything else seemed kind of seemed to go to plan and you could also say the same about having a spare wheel in the back of your car yeah you don't need it until you need it and it will make the difference i mean i didn't have spare shoes so that could have been a bad thing you know if i hadn't managed to sort things out now seeing as you mentioned shoes i was very surprised to see your choice of shoe you were using the nike vaporfly that would be the last shoe I would be suggesting for a race like that. What made you pick them? I've raced on variants of, of that the last year and a bit. And even like last year, I did the race in the Zoomfly, which Zoomflies are kind of like a, a cheaper version of the Vaporflies. And that's what I do all my training in. This year, it was the Vaporfly Next Percent, which they have a very thin upper. It's almost like a paper thin upper and... I chose that shoe because I knew it was going to be a hot race. I didn't want my feet to get sweaty and hot. I don't know if that made a huge difference. And uh, I've tried other shoes. You know, I've tried some of the classic ultra running shoes that people favor. And uh, I just find them a bit heavy and and clunky. So I prefer the Nikes. (laughs) Well, maybe they're heavy and clunky, but 
when you get to the later stages of a race, they do offer that bit more protection. And a soft shoe like the Vaporfly wouldn't have much cushioning in the sole. Yeah. When you're starting to lose your running form because of mm-hmm. muscle integrity being affected by the long distance, your feet hit the ground harder. Yeah. And you're more susceptible to bruising on the sole of your feet. Especially when you're going downhill in that last stretch of the race. I would think that a shoe like that that's built for performance over shorter distances would actually be, to me, I would think that they would be kind of a negative over a longer distance. Yeah. I think it's it's a very personal choice, you know, shoes. And uh, apart from the issue kind of I mentioned where I was getting my Achilles kind of rubbed by a sort of small band at the back. Other than that, I found them a really good shoe. And especially towards the end where I was able to put in, a, you know, occasional fast split running downhill. So, yeah, I kind of, I had issues with them, but they weren't the issues I expected. What would you like on the mountain stage coming down off the mountain? Yeah, I talked to someone else about this who was using the same shoe. And I think he was going to change for that section because it's the only part of the race where it is rocky and it's not smooth tarmac. So you've got about a mile uphill on a sort of classic rocky trail and then another mile downhill or maybe even more than that and it's loose kind of rock and it's it's pretty tricky no they, they weren't the ideal shoe for that at all but i i wasn't going to change um because i didn't want to lose time changing shoes and then having to change again but having said that they weren't terrible you know uh, i was able to keep my footing didn't fall over and i know a lot of people did fall over coming back down so obviously that was them suffering from fatigue and you were still in good condition yeah there's also the possibility of kicking a stone and when you've yeah those shoes would have little protection as possible but obviously you've proved their worth let's talk a little bit about your nutrition in your race report you mentioned your nutrition plan was simple some people will say that's complicated when you're talking about taking in 300 calories an hour and also you using the timer but i suppose the fact that you had a plan that took the complication out of it and you seem to be running very efficiently did you suffer from any gastric issues i'm I'm one of these kind of fortunate runners who very rarely has anything like that there was one moment where i think i'd taken something extra i do have a few uh, other little things that i might take like um there's a Connecticut product called uh, Race Fuel that has, it's a sort of mixture of amino acids and B vitamins, but also a good bit of caffeine. And uh, I found that can give me a bit of a boost during a race. So yeah, I took some of that not long after taking on my usual nutrition and, and that kind of, I think just an overload of the, the stomach. I felt a bit nauseous, but managed to keep everything down. The rest of the race is pretty simple. You know, I had uh, in my drop bags, the occasional bar and some solid food but i only had one during the race i was very early on and then the rest was all liquid form nutrition a mixture of tailwind and martin and occasional martin gels as well were all your calories coming from carbohydrate or were some of them coming from protein was there any bit of a mix of protein no there was, there was no protein uh, apart from that one time that i took the Connecticut product which was branch chain amino acid sort of mix and but yeah i wasn't taking on any other protein other than that most people in races of these distances favoring a fat fueling approach but in my opinion i think the intensity that you apply to the race will determine the type of fuel you need so if you're able to burn off 300 calories in the form of carbohydrate per hour you're obviously operating at a high heart rate were you using a heart rate monitor to pace yourself not this year i did it last year and and the problem with them is and especially in a race like that if you're using a, a strap based one you can get blistering or scars and and i i didn't know until after the race last year that when i took it off how bad it affected me and i think i had scars across my chest for about a month afterwards oh you still have them yeah <laughs> 
and I, to be honest, I wasn't paying that much attention to my heart rate other than realizing this is in 2018, realizing that everything was okay. And, you know, it was a pretty sensible heart rate. This year, it was, it was pretty much on pace and feel that I ran it. Um, I didn't think I needed it really, you know. But you had probably worked out a pace that matched up or aligned with your heart rate from training sessions. So you knew exactly what you could do. Yeah, I was kind of on a par with what most of my easy runs would be. So knowing that in a non-fatigued state, it would be in, you know, kind of the low zones. Uh, and I wasn't really, you know, pushing myself too hard, but it was sustainable. Just out of curiosity, what's your current marathon PB? 2.42, I think, is current one. Like everyone else, I think I can do better. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, 2.42 is fairly moving, and if you were to step back to a 5.15 per kilometre, that's a significant difference. I thought 5.15 would be about 3.40 marathon. Would that be right? Yeah, I don't know, actually. Uh, yeah, I'm not too sure. But th- there's a big difference in pace between that and my marathon pace, certainly, yeah. Can you talk us through the mental side of the race? When you were standing at the start line, you were 246 kilometres away from being able to stop, able to sit down, able to rest, knowing that it's over. How did you deal with that before you took the first step? Yeah, <laughs> it's a difficult one because you kind of try and, and visualise how you're going to feel during a race like this. But at the end of the day, you never really know what's going to be what you're going to be hit with and the main thing I would do is just try to visualize the pain or well, not necessarily the pain but how hard it's going to be and and knowing that you've trained for it and you can get through it you've done it before also that most of the other people you're up against are going to be feeling the same way especially in the latter stages of the race so they're they're going to be suffering too so you know if you can keep positive you're going to do all right and would you take some strength from passing out a runner who you see is maybe suffering that bit more than you are yeah yeah, unfortunately you do, you know. We all do. Coming off the mountain this year, there was um, a Russian woman called Irina, I can't remember her second name, but uh, she was really uh, suffering and I, I didn't take any pleasure from that, but it kind of gave her a bit of encouragement and uh, she ended up being second place woman, so she did well. But then later on, I came into a checkpoint and I saw, I can't remember his name, Japanese runner who, who had been leading the race and he was sitting down with a blanket around him looking pretty sad and I'd been running with a Hungarian guy for I don't know about 20 kilometers and we were trading places and he came in and sat down and immediately asked for soup and uh, that, that was one of the moments where I took great pleasure in because like someone sits down and asks for soup you know they're going to be there for a while so I was out there immediately and uh, picked up the pace knowing that he wasn't going to catch me from then on. Yeah that helps. Sleep deprivation, was that an issue? Not really this year, no. And yeah, it's it's kind of funny one because I didn't get a huge amount of sleep the night before, but it was okay. And obviously most people are taking on some kind of caffeine during a race like this, both to keep themselves alert, but also to aid calorie absorption. But no, I got to the end and I was like, yeah, I'm fine, you know. And I ended up staying up all day, you know, watching the other runners come in afterwards. Eyes were playing tricks on me at some points during the race, but that's kind of normal in in a race where you're running for over 24 hours, you know, not necessarily hallucinations or anything, but you just kind of, 
see things that you you're not really sure what they are until you get close up to them and then they're not what you thought you were yeah well exactly i saw <laughs> i saw this thing in the sky and it was like that really bright star it's like it was a kind of cruciform star and it was like something from a sort of biblical scene and uh, i was thinking to myself this is the mad things that go through your head when you're in a race it's like is that a supernova it's like has there been a supernova and like this has actually happened during the race and this is going to be a big news story and it turned out it was basically there was this big black hill that i couldn't see because it was pitch black in in the middle of the night and this was basically across on top of the hill that was lit up with floodlights <laughs> i thought it was a big star did you realize then that you were hallucinating i wouldn't call it a hallucination i was just a little bit you were uh, seeing you were seeing something <laughs> that was there. a little bit doolally and a little bit i am um, i don't know out of sorts at that point yeah can you talk us through the final section leading into sparta where you descend those last few hairpin turns yeah it's pretty special and uh one of the reasons why i really wanted to go back this year because the hurricane in 2018 kind of ruined i wouldn't say ruined the the finish experience but they kind of finished sort of line and the the lead into sparta is kind of legendary you know people talk about it and say there's no no other race like it and uh so you come down you pass like through a village and then there's a couple of hairpins and more hairpins and more hairpins and uh there's a final one where there's a kind of house in the corner and right there is where you kind of realize you're you're nearly home but this year like the, the kids kind of giving support all the way out on the course and this is like eight o'clock in the morning or something they're all up and they're all on their bikes so initially there was maybe five or six kids on bikes and they're kind of giving me encouragement and they decide to sort of follow me all the way into town and before i knew it there's like 20 to 30 kids all taking up the whole road busy road and a police guy on a, on a motorbike comes along and tells them to behave themselves but that was pretty much all the way into town until it sort of got built up and then you turn a corner uh, to come onto the main street where you're coming coming up to where the finish line is and uh there are more uh, school kids who are maybe like a running club or something but they all sort of join me as well so the massive sort of entourage all sprinting up towards the finish line which is an amazing feeling and then you start hearing sort of the crowd at the finish and uh the support from some of the british crew and uh, some of the irish people who are there and uh, yeah it's, it's a pretty amazing experience and one of the kids almost took you out of it as you were approaching the finish is that right yeah yeah they're all popping wheelies and trying to show off <laughs> so one of them popped a wheelie and then came down and uh careered into me and uh nearly tripped me up yeah so <laughs> it nearly came a cropper right at the end and how does the race actually finish yeah so i mentioned the the kind of run up towards the main street and uh there's one kind of final checkpoint where you most people don't leave anything other than a flag this year i didn't bother i was just i was thinking maybe a bit um superstitious about it and thinking i'm not going to leave a flag this year i've just want to concentrate on my race and uh, not have to worry about that but uh, most people would pick up a flag and for the last couple of kilometers they're running up with the flag and they're getting the cheers and you've got four steps at the end which are the hardest steps in the world to walk up and there's a statue of king leonidas there and kind of classic way to finish is run up to him kiss his feet and uh you get a really nice presentation of you know a finishes trophy and uh some water from the Evrotus river which is a local river in, in sparta and yeah the kind of photographs and everything you also get pretty amazing medical care at the end as well you basically get your feet completely looked after and taped up or, or whatever you know have whatever state they're in i spoke to Wayne jennings recently and she said the same thing about the medical care but 
the medical care is there because it's needed. Yeah, and uh, it's it's funny because it's not really the people who are finishing at the sharp end of the field who necessarily need it. When you see it later on, it's like a field hospital from a war film or something, or like something out of MASH because everyone's on intravenous drips and they're kind of half asleep, half awake, you know, getting massages and their feet are in bits. So yeah, it, in a way, it's kind of a comical scene, but it, it's nice to know that you get that treatment at the end of a race you're not just escorted off and told to go back to your hotel you know they really do look after you well congratulations once again on fourth place finishing that race that's truly amazing now i'd like to take just a little step back i've only ever met you in a race environment can you tell me a little bit about yourself like what do you do apart from running have you any other sports what were you doing before you got into running i was kind of into sports at school but like everyone like well, a lot of people just drift away from it after they're not really told to do it at school so I was good at athletics and good at rugby and I've been working in in Dublin since 2000 and my work is sort of wine and whiskey that sort of field fortunately recently I was able to go part-time as well so that that kind of gave me more scope kind of stay-at-home dad but also it gives me the opportunity to, to train a bit more but I never kind of got into running until I fell off my bike and did some of my ligaments in and it was taking too long to heal really about six months to 12 months afterwards I went to a physio and they were like yeah you should really just try running put some pressure on your legs and uh, see how it goes from there so I went from there to doing 5k's 10k's half marathons and marathons and uh, read Scott Jurek's book Eat and Run and uh, was pretty inspired by that to give ultra marathons a go and I think I just wanted to see what I was capable of and if I was in any way sort of able to emulate some something like he's done, you know. He's a pretty amazing runner, had an amazing career. Yeah, he sure is. I've met him a couple of times. I was in Breve back in 2010 when he set the 24-hour American record, which has recently been, I think Camille Heron might have beat that last weekend over in France. And a really nice guy. And the year I did the Spartathlon, he won it that year. Ah, right. Just let's talk a little bit about your training. You said you started to use a coach. So you're training now under the guidance of Camille Heron, the now 24-hour world record holder and 24-hour world champion, and her husband and coach, Connor Holt. I've met Connor, had a very informative chat with him. There's a lot of information out there, and actually there's a lot of wrong information out there, and it's it's important to know who to listen to. So obviously, Connor has steered you in the right direction. How is your training going with him? Um, It's still kind of early days. It's only really since end of April this year that we've we've been training together and i would say there's probably an element of them trying to figure out where i am in sort of ability i would say it's been going great as well and if anything i'm, I'm finding it easy you know compared to what i was doing before because my weeks are structured properly like a, a proper uh training week where my easy run like recovery runs are purely recovery runs whereas before i was always like tempted oh yeah you know i feel great today i'm just gonna go out and bang out a sub 40 minute 10k or you know and then realizing it's like well i didn't actually benefit from that that much um but this time you know the quality sessions are there and the recovery sessions are there for recovery and i i think the the benefits i've noticed so far maybe in economy and efficiency that's probably where i've I've improved my marathon times are kind of stayed the same so far but like i said it's it's early days so but i like their their attitude you know they're laid back and they're 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 not pushy in a way you know it's, it's up to me to 
to fulfill the, the training week it's a, you know i'm i'm in charge essentially they're just giving me what i should be doing you know and they have a proven track record and skin in the game to me i think an advantage with having or using a coach is it takes away part of that stress where you haven't got to think about what to do you're told what to do and you follow that so you can make other decisions yourself i just want to talk a little bit about some other races you were in crawley earlier this year i met you over there you ran 162 kilometers just slightly over 100 miles was that your plan just to cover 100 miles in that race Ah uh, no, that was like that race was a disaster from start to finish, and I shouldn't have travelled there. I shouldn't have gone because a month before I'd done the Anglo Celtic Plate, which for anyone who doesn't know, it's a kind of inter-country sort of hundred k race where Scotland, England, Wales, Ireland, Northern Ireland all sort of take on each other in a team race. So I'd done that, and I was fortunate enough to run for Scotland. I had a great race, but I kind of tweaked my Achilles and. Between the Anglo-Celtic plate and then the Crawley 24 hours, I think I had two runs and they were basically test runs to see was I able to run and they were kind of inconclusive. So I I know now that's like silly to even contemplate a 24-hour race with probably any kind of injury, but the Achilles injury wasn't good anyway. So uh, I, yeah, I shouldn't have done that race. I got to just over 100 miles and then dropped out and I, I think I'd done a good deal more damage to my Achilles than was already there as well so yeah that was a bit of a disaster. Listening to you talking now I'm beginning to think that because 162 kilometers being the 100 miles I'm now thinking that you were suffering early yeah but you set yourself a reasonable target you didn't want to stop at 80 miles you didn't want to stop at 90 miles yeah and that's like what we were saying earlier about following a definite plan when I mentioned running 40 kilometers rather than 42 kilometers just cover the distance so realistically, running that kind of distance in Crawley could have had a very negative effect on your Spartathlon if you didn't put the effort into recovering. So that's where you really need to, I suppose, keep the ego in check and stop it becoming just an obsession of clocking up the miles. Yeah, that, I mean, the ego was there anyway because I had started the race. But I think a lot of people kind of look negatively on runners when when they do drop out of races and they're kind of like, well, why did you drop out? It's like, especially if, if you got two or three really big races in one year you have to be thinking ahead of the next one and contemplating whether it's worth you continuing on in the current one in regards to your targets and you know finishing races is great but if there's nothing to be gained other than bragging rights then you have to sort of uh, think about that and well yeah maybe I can come back next year or I can take on another race and beat the target that time rather than continuing on just for a finish and that's where the maturity comes in i've been in races with ian keat and when things are going really really bad he doesn't just stop but if he knows he has to stop he'll stop so in some ways it's not really giving in or dropping out it's stopping because you know you need to and that's i suppose making an educated decision based on experience maybe next time rounds something like that isn't going to happen to you do you think you might try to qualify for the european championships next year for scotland in 24 hours not next year because they're slightly clashing with spartathlon oh that's right. almost a week apart yeah i kind of looked at it and i was trying to look up decent 24-hour races where i could do something but i think i'm probably going to give that a go after spartathlon next year so maybe november december next year look at a few races possibly barcelona or there's, there's a few around that time of year to try and make the UK team but 
the standard is really high. <laughs> it's it's pretty daunting. You know, you're going to have to do over 150 miles, more likely closer to 160 to get on the, the British team, such as the high standard at the moment. Yeah, and that's quite a lot. Yeah, the bar has certainly been raised. The conversation certainly get quite interesting now, and we're going to, have to finish up because we're both on a lunch break, uh, recording this during our lunch break. If I was to look at your music collection, what might be the most played song? Oh, wow. I didn't mention earlier on, I am actually a, a musician. I play in a band called La Galaxy. And uh, my, my kind of music taste is pretty eclectic. So I, what would be my most played song? Like I have a playlist for kind of races where you're allowed to actually listen to music. And it goes from sort of heavy dance to electro to thrash metal and all kinds of stuff in between so on that probably the heaviest rotation would be something by slayer maybe <laughs> i can edit that last question out now if you want yeah maybe <laughs> now for anybody wanting to read your race report which is a, a good read they can get that at the british Team.org website and there's also a good video of you finishing the race which is up on your instagram account what's your instagram account al higgins runs now before we finish up is there anything you might you want to add to the conversation any bit of advice you might want to offer somebody thinking about getting into ultra running or a race like the Spartathlon? well there's a few things maybe i mean i would say give it a go for a start don't be overwhelmed by going beyond marathon distance it's just a mental game so if you train and you're comfortable doing marathons definitely give ultra marathons a go but also maybe step out your comfort zone you know try and do some races in other places outside of ireland up against top runners because when you're racing against the the fast guys that's when you really learn what it takes to to compete at that level finally is there one piece of equipment that you wouldn't be without oh i don't know like I used this year and last year and in lots of other races uh, a thing called a flip belt, which is just like a, a kind of strip of fabric that you can stuff all kinds of things in. They're great for long training runs and, and races where you, you have to kind of access stuff really quickly. So yeah, flip belt's pretty good. And what watch do you use? I use a Garmin Fenix 3, which uh, is pretty old at this point, but it's uh, sturdy and reliable. How was the battery life for your race? I got, I think, 12 hours out of it because, like I said, it is old, but it's got the facility to charge on the go, so I oh, very stuck good. on a battery pack for an hour or two and uh, it was good again. Right, well, we'll finish with that. And again, I said I found a very informative and maybe we might sit down again and talk about the mental side of things and how to keep going yeah i might look at doing a podcast with a few athletes such as ian keith yourself and again just talk about what was starting to come out as we were finishing this up yeah so thanks again alistair and uh, good luck with your next race thank you 